Welcome back to the Mastering Miles podcast, everyone. My name is Matt Ferlindis. I am a physical therapist in the Milwaukee area that specializes in treating runners and running injuries. For this episode, we are talking running skills with Robert Milebeck of Expedition Performance. We are diving into running from a skill standpoint and specifically talking about motor control and how our nerves and muscles coordinate together to, in order to allow us to become better runners, more efficient runners, in order to overall help our running form and um, optimize ourselves as runners. We go into talking about different workouts such as strides, tempo workouts, long runs, as well as diving into more hills and pace specific workouts as well. So um, a lot of great information. And in this episode, we kind of talk about running in a way that many people don't think about it um, in more of a skills way overall. So hope you enjoy the episode. And again, if you are enjoying the podcast, feel free to like and subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I would very much appreciate it. But without further ado, let's get into our running skills conversation with Robert. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Robert. It's so glad it's so great to have you back on. Um, if you want to go ahead and reintroduce yourself to anyone that might be listening that didn't necessarily hear the last episode with you on it, that would be awesome. Yes, hello. I'm Robert Milebeck. I'm a physical therapist and coach. I work with Expedition Performance, local to the Milwaukee area. Uh, we are a hybrid coaching service, so we work with athletes local to this area, but we also work with athletes online, wherever they might be. Uh, goal of expedition is to work on finding the things that move you, finding the ways that things that you are passionate about, and then helping you move towards those goals a little bit more. Of course, I'm involved very much in the running side of it because that's my personal passion. Uh, but we do try to find those solutions for all different types of athletes. Awesome. And um, I'm excited to kind of go through and chat today. We're going to kind of be progressing off of running form a little bit with kind of what we introduced in the last podcast in terms of like striding towards optimal running form overall. And today we're going to be kind of diving into a little bit more of like a motor control specific aspect of that and specifically being able to build our running skills overall. Do you want to kind of go ahead and explain that a little bit more in depth overall? Absolutely. So I find that it very interesting that a lot of programs out there, they're either an introductory program, something like a couch to 5k that, yeah, builds up your endurance, but that's what it is. You reach that finish line of being able to run a 5k, however many minutes it takes you, that's the end goal. And then a lot of times people end up going, well, what now? And then they go, okay, a longer race, a bigger race, maybe faster. And it becomes very race specific where they're trying to hit a 5k, a 10k half marathon marathon is so many people get so invested in it seems like, and they never take the time to really approach running as a sport. And in order to approach running as a skill, because it is a repetitive act, the best thing that you can do is work on motor control, uh, neuromuscular performance. And so breaking it down into, as we've talked about a couple of times now, 
The strength component, making sure that you have even the tissue capacity to be able to handle running is essential at the start. And then if you break down that running form into uh, the different parts to improve your stride and improving that type of strength, there's like the building blocks. But you don't necessarily have to go directly into race-specific workouts. I think there's a number of workouts in between that kind of cue you up and get you ready to be a strong, healthy runner without necessarily aiming for a specific race quite yet. I think a lot of people would benefit from taking like a four to eight week in between training cycle in order to work on these type of skills and develop that motor control. So that way they feel even more in control and stronger when they are hitting an actual race block. Yeah. And that, that all makes really good sense because when we think about other sports, you know, like practicing, whether it's basketball, baseball, football, volleyball, or whatever, a, a large component, and many of us have played some of those sports, a large component of the practices involves some sort of skill or motor control, working on drills of some sort. And you're right, we don't really focus on that in terms of running. And like you said, that's a key area that we can definitely miss and we can kind of build ourselves to be stronger. And when, like you said, when we have the foundation of the building blocks of the strength and whatnot, this is a layer that we can lay on top of that to really enhance performance, keep us injury free, all that good stuff. And I definitely see it as like an in-between mesocycle of type of training. I think for some, someone who's completely new to the sport of running, I think this is really important for them to develop early on. I think a lot of like high schoolers, when they come in, there's no time for it. They go from preseason right into race season. And I think that's why a lot of them end up getting injured, actually. And they uh, they do get a little beat up. And the people who succeed, they succeed no matter what. But if you're not fighting against a specific season, if you have the time because you're a non-sport or school-based athlete, I think it's wise to take a step back and kind of work on these other types of workouts instead and focus on them for a little bit. So let's get into it then. So we're going to be kind of going through some specific workout types that are very familiar to runners and why it might be beneficial to work on some of those and what type of benefit you're going to get from it. So let's start off with strides. And um, as runners, we've all have done these. So what is the benefit of working these into a running program and when would be an appropriate time to work them into it? Like on um, easy days on harder days. Yeah. So I, I, I think in general strides as well as applying actual like cadence strides, working on short intervals of trying to improve cadence rather than just long form cadence kind of go hand in hand. Uh, and once again, it's that idea of creating that nice, tight, stiff running form for at least short bursts. Once again, if you do it for short first, for someone who's a little bit newer to it, they can usually tolerate it without getting too beat up from it. So that's kind of where my viewpoint is in terms of how to implement it. And so for me, once someone has that fully aerobic base, I think strides should be the introductory workout per se that they should start to use. And it, it can be pretty early on. I think strides by themselves could be several days per week. still taking just like any workout, a day of rest or relative recovery between to allow the form to, uh, to relax a little bit and make sure that all muscles are fully recovered before getting right back into it. And the big thing with strides that's nice is it takes you through the full range of motion. So it's working on you being able to control your full um, 
not maximal voluntary contraction, but your full muscle contraction from one extreme to the other. Because you are meant to be in most cases, accelerations or strides, however you want to look at it. You're going from that slow, typical speed to something that's probably at the max end at the end of it. And so it's that little taste of stretching everything out and making sure that your body can really control it throughout the entire, the entire range of motion. And it's a really good skill to work on um, because a lot of the times, like if we're following a training program where like 80% of our training is at slower intensities, there aren't many times where we're getting that full range of motion, like you said, and working those kind of fast twitch muscle fibers overall. And so that's probably where we're going to benefit from doing some of these because then we get that added motor control benefit of getting our nerves and our muscles firing in a way that we don't normally do on a, on a standard run. Exactly. And, and like, once again, it's how do you carry over the squats? How do we do the squats? How do we do the lunges, the single leg squats, the pogos, right? And, and, and part of it is we try to go through full range with those. We try to increase the speed, but at the same time, is it at that 160 to 180 beats per minute? Like that's, that's fast, right? Three per second, like type of thing. Like that is pretty quick. And that would be very fast, except for probably the pogos as you like. Um, in order to get done. And so this is that way of getting that taste of it and letting your body start to figure out how to control that form to make sure that you're not out of control and you're not just plodding on the pavement an extra hard. Yeah. What is a good prescription for these? Like how many should we try to do? Um, and yeah, how many should we try to do? We mentioned trying to go all the way to that fastest speed possible. Uh, but what's a good number for us to shoot for? Yeah, I, I usually like to set up strides as being uh, between five to 10. I kind of call, call big strides when you get to the 10. And I like for them to be between 20 to 30 seconds in length. And then with pretty much full recovery, still active recovery between, but I like a good 45 to 60 seconds between each of them. So to make sure that you feel like you, you're not losing your breath from it because we want the quality. We really want to focus on the quality of form um, throughout without getting overly fatigued. That's not really the point of strides at this, at this interval. That's a good distinction as well. And in terms of like the motor control, so like we said, we're getting all these nerves firing appropriately nerves that we don't normally get firing. How about in terms of just our energy metabolism, what type of benefit do these faster paced sprints intervals, um, or, strides, accelerations, what type of metabolism benefit do they kind of give us? Sure. Sure. And I, this, this makes me think of a, a time that I talked to one of my friends who's a coach, his name's Alex. And he, he had this crisis of faith for a moment where he went, well, why am I doing, why am I having my runners run 600 meters at a time? That's, that's not enough to trigger any of the energy systems. And I was like, Alex, it's not one repetition that matters. It's the entire workout together that creates that, that stimulus for the energy systems. And so that's the big thing is with, with these strides, yeah, 20 to 30 seconds, it's not really specifically anything. It's not short, short for your anaerobic system. It's not long enough to trigger your full aerobic system. But if you take that where you do 30 seconds, you take a minute in between, we're talking about seven minutes of work there and you are amplifying it pretty high. You're getting up into kind of that high intensity interval training style where you are getting your heart rate high and it's going to stimulate the VO2 some. Uh, but once again, I, I think there's better ways of stimulating VO2, but this is a nice introduction, a nice way to tune up the system between bigger workouts. Mm -hmm. 
one thing that I've seen some people do, and I've seen this in some professional athletes, and I like to do this myself with my strides, since this is a little bit of a shorter duration of running, um, I find that running barefoot sometimes on like if you're on a grassy field can sometimes be beneficial because we do get some pretty good um, mechanic benefits by running barefoot in terms of just we shorten our ground contact time. There's less vertical oscillation. We have um, better leg stiffness and a little bit better muscle activation with those things. So this might be a good time to work on some of those to, again, kind of work in that motor control and kind of get us moving in a little bit of a different way. Exactly. And that's the thing is there, once again, especially if you're just dabbling in that barefoot, you don't want it to be to maximum, right? You don't want it to be where your form could really break down because it's opening up the door for unintended consequences in that situation. But it's not bad to have a little bit of a different stimulus happen that is novel to the body because novel and multiple different types of situations allows you to be a more diverse and capable runner. And I, I think as we kind of go through this, it, this is what makes me think of why I, treadmill running can be a detriment. Treadmill running, you're unless you're really being aware of how much incline you're doing, you're running the exact same surface in the exact same way. And there's some great benefits in terms of motivation and overall just getting your heart rate up with that. But then when you go out on a road or a trail, it might not carry over one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. I like I like carrying over more than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, training is about preparing your body for variation. And so introducing that variation in the training is so important to make sure you're getting the good adaptations to your running, um, to your training, all of that. And so I kind of mentioned the little cadence strides type of idea too. Mm -hmm. And so with that idea, I, I, once again, I usually dabble with the people who I think need to increase it a little bit more if they want to get a little more pep in terms of how they move, not the individuals who are already at a high cadence. But I think for the individuals who need to practice it a little bit, it's a good way of just getting a bit of a neuromuscular response, a little bit of that response time of the system, that reflex of, of a reciprocal gait without having any of the high impact because you're still meant to keep it nice and controlled. You're meant to keep yeah. that velocity nice and controlled, as you had mentioned. Um, so I like it as a way to dabble in that as well. In terms of specifically cadence work, um, what are the benefits of like increasing that cadence? Like how do we know necessarily if we might benefit from raising that cadence up uh, um, overall in terms of our run form, in terms of like both just running economy as well as injuries too? Mm -hmm. I, I, once again, I think this does depend on the individual a little bit, but I don't think by playing around with that run form that you're going to invite injury in certainly. And so anyone can try it out for five by 30 seconds and get a feel for it and see what feels more natural for them or, or what feels more efficient for them unnecessarily. I think that there are some individuals who run at a slower cadence naturally. And I don't think that's necessarily correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am in that camp that I think there is a more optimal way of going. And it's not necessarily it's a little bit of their stride length. I should say it is a little bit of their stride length of whether they're overstriding and that's why their cadence is low, but it is also how much they are landing and hitting the ground rather than rebounding and progressing themselves from the ground. If they have a brisker cadence, they usually look like they're carrying themselves over their mid stance a little bit better. And then that allows them to be more natural and efficient not as much loss going up and down, not as much loss um, in terms of overreaching with their leg.
And we know that there isn't like a one size fit all cadence for everyone. Like we know yeah. now that everyone does not need to be at 180 steps per minute or anything like that. Nice. Do you have an optimal range that you like to utilize in terms of like at the minimum this at all? I would say the minimum that I see is more around that 160. I feel like most of the individuals that I've seen that have come in with an impact style injury, repetitive impact injury, uh, like a, a metatarsal, uh, or I'm sorry, not metatarsal, but um, um, like a stress fracture type injury, it's because they are landing so far in front of themselves because they almost look like they're leaping or bounding with each step rather than propelling themselves with each step. So I think that lower end, there is kind of that threshold of around 160 that looks nice, but I'm not going to stress anyone to get up to 180 or anything like that. Yeah, I'm I'm totally in agreement. And it seems like that 160 number is, is very similar for me as well. I also find that people um, with uh, pain in the front of their knee as well, really do benefit from increasing that cadence because typically if somebody is like a runner is having pain at the front of their knee usually not always but usually they tend to overstride a little bit more which causes a little bit more loading to the front of that knee and there's been some pretty solid research that increasing that cadence a little bit can really reduce loading rates overall too so yeah. uh, i don't change it a ton on people unless they're like really really low or dealing with some of the knee pain just because like you said, it's it's not like a one size fit all. Everyone needs to be here. There's variation. We all have different bodies, um, and so that variation is okay overall. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's exactly why I like this as an introductory workout or a return to form workout because it, it's a it's a trial period, right? You mm -hmm. test it out and you go, oh, did that feel better? And if it did, that's something to investigate more with your coach or whoever you're you're, you're following for your training or your PT or whoever you're with at that point. So I just, I like it as a way of highlighting some thought process about our body, be more mm -hmm. aware, each runner more aware. Yeah. And going off of that, not even your own awareness, but also kind of your body's awareness because your body and brain are really smart and adaptable. And if you figure something out that works better for it and is a little bit more efficient, it's going to start picking that up um, pretty quickly overall too. So the body's smart, it knows what it needs and it kind of knows what is most efficient with it. And so getting it variety in terms of these drills with the strides and the cadence work um, can just like we were talking about, increase that variation and, and let that brain and the body find a comfortable position or um, stride for it to be in. Exactly. And I think one of the resources I've looked at is, is talking about your own preferred stride length versus like the, 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 the clinical best stride length for maximizing length compared to your VO2 max. So if you're running at a normal speed and you shorten your length, if your VO2 max goes down, it means you're technically running more efficiently. Arguably, yes. Technically, if you run a little bit shorter stride length, your VO2 might be a little bit better, but it's not enough to be like a clinical difference. Like it's not enough that it's worth that mental load because when we're talking race performance, then mental load is just as important. I think when we're talking 1% changes and if you're stressing and straining, the rest of your body's not going to be relaxed or you're just going to fatigue out mentally. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point for sure. Um, let's go ahead and let's move on to the next one, which is more of our tempo style workouts. So what are some things that we can work on when we're doing our tempo runs and why is it so important that we kind of work on those things? Sure. So when, when I say tempo, I view it 
a little bit as like a category. It's it's your you're comfortably difficult. It's you can't necessarily say multiple sentences, and that's all the way up to about somewhere of a lactate threshold type workout. But it depends on how you structure it. It depends on how you work through it. I think a really good way for someone to gauge their effort for a tempo or a lactate threshold is to be running at a rate of two steps per breath in, two steps per breath out, and kind of getting that rhythm down. Naturally, that controlled breathing pattern allows for a speed that is consistently difficult, but not unattainable to maintain for a very long time. Now, how relaxed you are breathing and whether it's that one, two, one, two, some people just get in their head about it. They, you know, they don't like it. It's, it's too mm-hmm. much counting. It's too much bugging for it. And that makes it so it's, they can't relax and they can't just settle into it. So that won't necessarily work. This is a framework only. And it's roughly that type of framework instead. Uh, but from my experience, for a number of individuals, if I take their race and I look at some predictors and I check out what their predicted lactate threshold is, and then I have them go out and do a workout based on this framework, it is very close in terms of total effort. So it's a good way that if you have no recent race, you're coming back from injury, you don't know what your fitness is yet. You can kind of get a gauge of what your fitness is in it. Once again, a controlled setting without having to go all out. It's not a time trial. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so overall, are you kind of saying in order to figure out that specific effort, two steps per breath in, two steps per breath out, if you find that you're not able to keep up with that, then and you have to breathe a little bit more, then you should probably slow down that pace Correct. a little bit overall. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So it's self-regulating. It's self-regulating that if your breath starts to become ragged, uh, it means that you're increasing your pace too much and you know, it's not going to be sustainable in the end. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yep. And, and once again, I think there's a little bit of a motor control component with this, like a, a body getting used to it type of thing where the first time you do it, it's not going to feel natural for someone who's new to this type of framework. So that first one, it doesn't go great for people usually. And that's fine. That's, that's why it's a mesocycle, right? That there should be multiple attempts at this to try and get a feel for it instead and, and, and try that out. And this can really help pinpoint that rating a perceived exertion scale too, in order to kind of key you into what this effort feels like. Because we know from some research that about six and a half on RPE scale from zero to 10 relates more to our lactate threshold. Six and a half um, usually is right around that level. So if you're able to do this and keep to the two steps per breath in, two steps per breath out, that should be around that six and a half level for you. So that's a nice way that you can calibrate that RPE scale a little bit too, more particular to you and yourself and your paces and your effort overall as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's uh, for that, it's multiple ways overlapping feedback essentially, because you never know, there can be different mm-hmm. things um, that can change up how, how difficult it might be rather than time, right? Time is so objective, but if it's a stressful day, your RP might be higher because you might be, or you might be feeling like it's our RP is higher. Or your, your scale might be off a little bit. Um, people who are anxious about a workout, um, they might rate it negatively. Uh, but if you give something else to focus on, it might be a way of tricking around that problem a little bit. I think both are good, just different ways of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Giving yourself multiple uh, stop points, essentially. So if you feel like you're going too hard, you can check your breath, you can check your RPE, and then it's like, okay, maybe I'm not getting 
what I need to from this specific workout. Maybe I'm working too hard or maybe I'm not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's what's great about tempo. Uh, tempo type efforts. There's a lot of way of looking at it. There's a lot of way ways of reining it in to make sure that it's not at, end up being too much for somebody at that point. So you can pepper it in once again, pretty early into a mesocycle. Once you have an aerobic base that you're feeling healthy at least, and there won't be a lot of harm. And the benefits are massive with this because it, the way that we're looking at for lactate threshold or a tempo pace is going to be much higher than what you'd be for a marathon pace necessarily. And, but it's going to be still below what you would do for a 5k for a 10k, uh, maybe a little faster than half marathon. So it's a lot faster than most people go on a daily run, but it is definitely not like you're in intervals. So you're not going to be pounding, pounding, pounding. It's just going to be stimulating your system in a really nice way. Mm -hmm. And metabolically, like you said, it, you get so many benefits of it because your body is producing lactate. And at this effort, at this tempo pace, your body is, again, producing lactate, but then it's also utilizing that lactate. So you're producing it and clearing it. And that's what training is about, getting more efficient at trying to clear that lactate overall, because um, that's going to increase that lactate threshold. That's going to make you faster. And so this is a really good pace and effort to work on that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And from a qualitative standpoint of form, if you do start to get fatigued in a late um, tempo workout that is based on either RPE or on this, this two steps system type style, you can always slow down the pace in order to maintain quality of form and kind of teach your body how to maintain that strong, upright posture, even when you're fatigued. And arguably, as long as you're working hard, even if you've gone slower, you're still gaining all the benefits from that adaptation, but it takes a little bit of pressure off of it to not overwork and beat the workout. So people try to beat the workouts so much and especially early on, it's not a great thing to do because it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that's just a way to overtrain and lead to injuries. So we do not want that at all. Mm -hmm. Progressing into more of that fatigue state, when we talk about our long run, what are, what are the specific benefits of that progressive long run that we're doing? Mm -hmm. The Once again, I think the biggest thing is Mileage and volume is king. <laughs> We're talking in the endurance running world. And if we are talking about any race that is 5K length or greater, which I think for most community runners who are not based on the track, that's what they're going to be doing. Volume is the biggest determinant of performance by far. You got to be strong and you got to be capable, but the higher the volume, the better you can handle. So Arguably, your energy reserves, if you train them up by having a progressively longer run that you can tolerate, it means that you can handle more volume in general throughout your week, not just in that moment. And then once again, you have to make sure, though, that that long run is not going to beat you up. The best way to be able to tolerate that long run is by having healthy, strong form throughout the entire run. In terms of that um, and trying to maintain that really good, healthy running form throughout so that we train ourselves to stay in that what type of pace or what type of effort should we be at this yeah i i i think that this falls under the the if we're looking at we can look at it from heart rate we can look at it from effort and we can also still kind of do that breathing pattern so if we're kind of kind of just to go back to that breathing pattern you would be a sustainable pace pace would be 
four steps per breath in, four steps per breath out. But I love the talk test with that, right? It's the same thing, essentially. You should be able Mm -hmm. to talk a couple of sentences with somebody out loud in order to make it happen. Um, Not to date this episode, Matt, but I just was reading again about the thing about Taylor Swift, how she was running on the treadmill, singing her, you know, running and singing fast songs, going slow as a recovery for her slower songs in order to pace herself throughout and learn that pacing. Um, and I love that. I think I think being able to talk throughout is really an important factor. I I use that example with so many patients, um, to be <laughs> honest with you, just because it is a it is a perfect example of like Taylor Swift is training for her concert tour and she is belting out her songs while she's running on the treadmill. Like there's no perfect there's no other perfect example of the talk test is that. And with her like changing the paces for like the faster songs, slower songs to match what she has to do on stage. That's a perfect example of it for sure. Yep. It's a, it's a variable, uh, a variable effort workout. It's, it's awesome. It's a really good way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if people can apply that in a fun way, I don't know, sing along to your own music. Once again, maybe on the treadmill, maybe treadmill yeah. for that one, sing along yeah. to your own music and enjoy it. It's a good way of pacing out. I like it. I think I might start saying that instead of be able to have a conversation with someone, I'm going to start saying, be able to sing a Taylor Swift song without pausing. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, these long runs, like you said, are so important because we know, like you said, volume is king. And there's a study, I believe it's by Yamaguchi, if I'm not mistaken, that just shows like better marathon times, those people ran more. They ran a longer, long run. They ran longer during their average runs. So we know that volume is really important. And this, not scary, but the thing we need to think about is sometimes volume can be, have some danger in the fact that we can sometimes get injured by increasing that volume too quickly. So the key word in this, I think, I think is progressive. We need to go slowly. We can't go from running eight miles in our long run to running 16. We need to slowly progress that little by little by little. And every time we progress, our body's going to get a little bit more fatigue, but is going to learn how to control that. So hopefully the fatigue we feel at, um, when we're at eight miles for a long run is a little similar to when we get to 14 mile 14 or 15 or 16 of a 16 mile run it's that progression and it's teaching our body to deal with some of that fatigue and to get stronger and adapt to that yep and i I feel like as a coach i i do a little bit of having my long run be a percentile of total volume of a week and i don't know if i do it on purpose i kind of think it's subconscious at this point just from seeing what works that doesn't seem like too little or too much, but that's one thing with some beginner marathon plans, specifically people who dive in and want to go, Hey, I'm, I'm all in. I want to be a marathoner. And they have some of those long runs that are like 60, 70% of their total weekly volume. And I just, I think that's such a backwards approach. I understand that people, you know, they get really passionate and they want to do it, but it's, it's definitely not optimal for safety. It's not optimal for a good time necessarily. Um, and if we can you know, have a little bit of that delayed gratification and take the time to develop it, it a bit more, it opens up doors for better success. Mm-hmm. 
And, and I mean, a lot of that volume has to do with not only that long run, but that weekly mileage. And yeah. if our long run is taking a huge percentage of that weekly mileage, then the weekly mileage probably won't be that much higher than our long run. And it's, it's taking that all in effect. It's, I would probably rather have an athlete achieve higher levels of weekly mileage versus just top out a long run as high as possible, because they're just going to get much better benefit from being on their feet a lot more by increasing slowly that weekly mileage overall. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to be like negative on, on, on canned plans or anything because some work great, but that is just one, one uh, pitfall that I kind of see that I want people to think about always. Yeah, (laughs) no, that's a really good point. And, um, so we chatted about kind of those specific workout styles. So now let's kind of talk about hills, love them or hate them. We got to deal with them as runners. And um, I like training hills because we get a really good motor control from them. So if you want to dive on in, Robert, and kind of explain a few things related to hills, that would be awesome. I think hill running is one of the absolute best ways to develop as a runner. Um, especially if you are going to be anything that is on a variable surface, even roads. Uh, when I get a, a, any anyone who's running, the first thing I look at is the terrain map. And I look to see how much climb and how much descent there is, especially as we get into longer races, though. I think people underestimate just how much climb can happen even on a relatively flat marathon. And if they're not necessarily prepared for those ups and downs, they might feel it a bit more than they expect. Uh, I I don't know. And there's not an exact uh, threshold on what, in my mind, is a flat marathon and what is a um, hilly marathon. I think something like Chicago, I count as a flat marathon. I really do. And I understand if people aren't doing hill work there. But like the one in my mind that I am so emphasis. People always have the Boston dream, right? To run the Boston marathon. And when I look at that, it's a lot of climb, but it is a lot of descent, a lot of descent. And people think downhill, oh, gravity's helping me. Not after 20 miles. <laughs> it is beating you up the entire time. So I, I really emphasize hill running for that exact reason. Awesome. So early on, Yes, like truly just getting out on hills, finding a hilly course, something that's rolling. Fantastic. You know, cruise mileage is great in that sort of way. But then I like to evolve it into a, a couple of different types of workouts. And it's it's the the ascending hills, which in my mind, I think of like that concentric force. It's power hill. It's that eccentric hill, that downhill descent control emphasis, even at speed. And then there's ones where you want to rip right from that downhill into the uphill. So you're a little fatigued and you have to get right back into it to change gears. Mm -hmm. And so I usually go in that order as well. I start with hills, just get out there, make sure you're running it strong form, look tall, uh, try to maintain an even pace. Don't rip it on the downhill. Don't slow slow down a lot on the uphill. But then on ascent hills, I really do see it as the way up should be something around that tempo effort, maybe a little bit harder, but you don't have to go all out by any means. And then on the way down, you have to make sure that you're not so relaxed that you're hearing your feet hit the ground hard. Because if that's happening, your form's breaking down even when you're trying to relax. So you don't want it to be a very high effort on the way up, um, an out of control effort. Typically, especially in a program like this, I like for people to try and progress it from something like a 200 meter hill to a quarter mile hill. 
which depending on where you're living, that's asking a lot. <laughs> like it really can be difficult to find that length, but that good minute and a half, two minutes of work is really beneficial, especially when you add multiple sets and reps. So that third workout, that descent hill, that, that control hill, I think that that's the Boston type training that I think people need to do. And it's that they go down at a quicker speed than what would be typical, but they maintain control the entire time. And the big one that I think this leads to is I think this helps with being able to have improved tissue capacity at the knees and also quad control to handle that, that type of landing force. Uh, generally the way I set it up is that, yeah, you go down at speed and then on the way up, you can't, once again, you can't slack off, you can't slow down a ton, but you still want to be able to recover. And so that's what makes that workout hard because it, it feels backwards. It definitely feels backwards for typical. And then the last one, you put it all together. You, you try to go downwards at that strong speed and then you turn right away, do a strong, fast one up. And then it's a recovery down, a recovery up. And then you repeat that for however many repetitions. Awesome. Um, when we're talking about hills, you get a decent number of like changes of how we're running, what muscles are working, all of that. And you kind of brought some of that up in, in chatting about it. Um, but let's just kind of split it apart a little bit. When we're talking about running uphill, what type of motor control changes and benefits are we going to get to our running form by like working on that ascending, going up that concentric force, going up the hill? Mm -hmm. Well, and big emphasis, as long as you're doing this with quality form, <laughs> if you practice them with bad form, you're getting nothing out of it and you'll just continue to go into it. So the two that I see kind of from top down is, is the first big one is that you have to have that extra upright because you're propelling yourself upwards. And so there is going to be a little bit of that, like core stability and, and postural stability there. Uh, the actual force of driving like through the hip to, to do a high knee to avoid ground contact, isn't that high because really the biggest force increase is going to be at the calf and the Achilles. So it's not so much about lifting your leg off. It's more about propelling, jumping your way up the hill in some ways. Yeah, that's a really good point. And one reason I really like uphill running, and I'm just taking a look at um, an article right now just to kind of see in particular. But one thing I find in a lot of runners is especially more um, injury specific is a lot of people tend to be a little bit more like quad specific in their running where they're kind of like using their quads and almost like kind of pulling them forward. And I find that with uphill running, we know from research that it really incre increases our hip extension, muscle activation. And so it really does help, like you said, that propulsive force forward and upwards. I find that it really helps to train glute muscles, hip extensor muscles to kind of get into the little bit more of that pushing off the ground and pushing yourself upward and forward a little bit more in order to get up that hill a little bit more effectively. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in terms of downhill, you meant made a mention of it's a lot of quad force. It's a lot of quad activation. And really when we, when we talk about hills and if a runner says I'm sore because of all the hills that I did or because of that hill workout, whatever it may be, it's usually the soreness comes from the downhill part. Why mm -hmm. is that? And what are some of the specific changes of that downhill running in particular? 
Sure. The first one is you're trying not to fall on your face. <laughs> and so truly you are, you are stopping an additional uh, factor of momentum because the step is going to be always a little bit lower and it's a little bit off from where you're at. And so that, that extra force is going to load a little bit different. There's a, a matter of a braking force really. And once again, that braking force is the motor control component because if uh, and I know uh, so, so for this is on the PT side, I know you've seen it before that person who comes in post-surgery, no quad control, and they look like they're about to take a knee because they take a step and their knee, their leg just says, nope, I'm not going to control this at all. And they look like they're going to drop down into a lunge instead. And you have to be very careful with those individuals. And that's, you know, that's after a nerve block or the surgery itself, inhibition is occurring there instead, but taking that, that acute injury version and sticking with that same thinking it's how it applies for that downhill control instead and it's um it always is surprising to me like a lot of times with a lot of runners i have them jump just because it's so important running is essentially jumping and a lot of runners will often tell me if i have them jump off a step kind of like more of a depth jump where you're jumping off a higher surface and landing that's essentially what you're doing with downhill running is you are leaping from a higher surface, landing on a lower surface, and it really just increases the total number of forces. And so it's that motor control component of learning how to accept those forces effectively. So that force isn't necessarily just going all the way through the joints, um, but we are properly accepting those forces and properly dispersing those forces with our muscles overall. Yep, exactly. And I think what happens with that is, is once again, training it in the gym, fantastic. It's a great way to do it, great to, way to introduce. We have to get a base somehow, but then it is a problem of scale. When we're running every minute, then let's, from what we talked about, it's 160, 160 repetitions of that downward control. And it's like, who's doing, you know, 10 or 16 by 10 of jumps. And that equals one minute of running downhill. And so it adds up really quick where you have to somehow scale it. And if you just go all out suddenly without building into that hill control, you're going to get ripped up. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's hard to purely train that in the gym, but you have to start somewhere and you have to be smart about it. Mm -hmm. It's specificity and trying to be Absolutely. specific to the course that you are. And if you are say running Boston with all of those downhills, Training on a lot of downhills, like you said, building that base in the gym first where we're building a lot of that quad strength, but then getting out on downhills and getting used to that force, it's going to allow your tissues, your quads, your knees, your hips, muscles to adapt to those forces. And we need to train that specificity or else we are going to be underprepared on race day. And the whole point of this is building up those skills, getting used to that. And I think for sure, that's one area that a lot of people don't think about or work on in particular because it's it's a game changer going down the hill, especially um, like those burst hills that you're talking about where we're trying to maintain that speed and increase that speed to kind of propel ourselves up the up the next hill. And that's why that's a third phase of that, because we need to get used to both going up and going down effectively um, and building our resilience and our tolerance of that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I do think a part of that is, you know, deep in our brain somewhere in terms of our reflexes and our neurotransmitters, there is a sense of training with that too. And that's a really hard thing to necessarily see in a, in a laboratory setting right now, but 
sports specificity we know works and that that's really what we're training in this situation mm-hmm. also one injury note that i want to make uh, just because it applies so much to hills for people that deal with more achilles issues is we typically have to just be more careful with uphill running just because like you said that places so much more load on the achilles itself and can cause sometimes some irritation with that also going downhill for individuals that might have some specific knee irritation, especially knee irritation through the patella, um, through the quad, through the front of that knee. We need to be a little bit more cautious with how we progress going downhill running just because we know the forces increase overall. And that's one thing I like to bring up with runners, two runners with those different various issues is we need to train that, but we need to just slowly and cautiously progress into that if somebody is a little bit more prone to those specific injuries. Um, let's go then into more of our recovery phase. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that there are some merits to having a planned recovery run. So relative recovery, uh, decreasing the pace, decreasing the total volume in order to still train the body and let it learn how to function uh, at a high level, but not in a way that is stressing and straining it instead. Um, full rest is great, right? Sometimes you need to take full rest, but there is those times where uh, you can get out and teach it at a higher level to be in control. Even when fatigued, there's some really big benefits from that. In terms of that recovery pace, in terms of just the effort or the pace, heart rate, whatever it is, um, a lot of standard runs are kind of at that aerobic pace, as we were talking about before, being able to have a conversation, being able to sing a Taylor Swift song, whatever it may be. Where does this recovery pace? Is this similar to that? Is this even a little bit more slow than that? Where does this fit in? Yeah, so I, I would say it's even more slow than that without letting form break down because you feel like you're walking. <laughs> and that's where that's where that's going to lie. The slower that you're able to go while still having that nice, stiff, correct form without plotting along, without having too slow of a cadence, however low that you can get it, that's great because it shows that you have full motor control even in a relaxed state. And so that's going to be highly variable by person, also based on what their typical day-to-day pace is. Uh, so I, I don't feel like I can give necessarily like a seconds per mile slower that is estimated there. Uh, it's it's about doing those checks, slowing down the pace, making sure that the breathing's good, making sure that the posture looks good. If you can go, if you can see a reflection and then doing a little bit of that count of the cadence to make sure that we're not basically shuffling along instead. From my experience with trying to get myself to run slower from time to time just because of the benefits that running slow can have just metabolically as, as well as in terms of recovery and form and everything like that it's really tough to get yourself to run really slow sometimes and it takes a lot of practice because if you're used to running at just like a mid intensity pace your body's just going to want to go right to that pace and you really like you said have to put those checks in place to make sure that you do kind of stay nice and slow and controlled and everything like that. And that's where I don't know if it's necessarily central central governor, but it is that neuromuscular pattern, right? That that gear that we like going right into. And it varies depending on fatigue. It varies depending on fitness a little bit. But it's funny how that happens, that cruise pace. But if you're constantly only in cruise pace, 
you can't really do anything. Like once again, it's good exercise still. It's great for, for cardiovascular benefits and just getting out there and moving, but for development, for sport, um, it might not do as much necessarily as what you're looking for. And it, that's why going high for the, uh, the hard, the tempo and the, and the strides, and then going low for specific recovery to allow the body to learn how to go from sympathetic system to parasympathetic system while still being a bit more active. Mm-hmm. Making the hard days hard and the easy days actually easy. And having that difference yeah, right. between them is a very important skill to learn indeed. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I feel like it gets a little bit of a bad reputation sometimes um, just because of, I feel like the word junk miles gets thrown around. And I don't really believe in that term because whether you are going slow, whether you are going that cruise pace faster, you are still training yourself and you're training your body and you're getting that impact, you're getting that aerobic benefit. And so no matter what pace you're at, we can get some really solid benefits from that pace. Um, and so it's hard to think that doing mileage isn't going to give us any benefit at all or else we wouldn't really wouldn't be doing it. So there is a benefit even going at the slower pace. Yeah, it, it's still specific. Once again, as long as the form and cadence doesn't break down, it can't be total junk because you're loading to some level, just not nearly as much, not as bad. And you're teaching your body to be comfortable while being active. And maybe that part's a little more mental to say, Hey, I can recover even when active. Uh, but that that's the big difference though. Someone does start to break down where they're just, um, plodding along. Yeah. I could see some negatives on that, but that's not recovery. Then that's, that's laziness. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And then last year, let's get into more pace specific here. Yeah. So I, I think pace specific work really it's, fun to do a little bit at the end of this in-between mesocycle just to spruce things up, just to get a little taste of it and kind of know that, yeah, I still got it (laughs) or I'm building it into it a little bit more instead. And so there's so many markers that have been thrown out. You know, you can go based on actual predicted race paces for a certain set of intervals. You can do stuff like uh, VVO2, uh, as we mentioned, VLT. Uh, critical velocity has been a factor that has been thrown around by a number of training groups in the past as well. And I think all of them are good as long as there's some sort of consistent system to be looking at. Uh, I, I think anything that as long as you are working at that high level, you're going to start seeing some changes. And then it's very individualized on which changes are most beneficial for a single individual runner. So kind of choose one system that seems to work well for you and then kind of stick with it. Because when we're talking about the differences between all of them, there aren't really too many huge differences between them. Exactly, exactly. And so right, right at the end of this, before you get into a full race uh, thing, it's it's fun. It's meant to be fun. It's, it's a low, you can maybe probably have it be a workout that's a little bit shorter than what you would really want as being like a high intensity, keeping it still more moderate intensity, but will letting your body get up to those different speeds and trying out those different gears in order to have a little bit of different, um, uh, different stimuli. And then that your body can kind of find, you can find what you like personally, what's kind of enjoyable to you, what you feel good. But at the same time, if you're like, oh yeah, I can cruise at VLT all day, but you put me at VVO2 and I'm exhausted. Well, that's your weak point then. That's probably what you need to work on the most. <laughs> so it's not so much about 
developing your system when you dabble in a couple of these workouts at the end of this mesocycle. It's more about finding what are you good at and what do you need to work on, acknowledging those things, and then incorporating it into the next training plan. Gotcha. In terms of some of those specifics, like what are those big differences between like VLT and VVO2? And what do those like workout differences look like between those two? Sure. So uh, VLT, uh, it, well, typically for each of these, if we're talking about actually on um, a, in a laboratory setting, we're talking about the breakpoints in which someone is having an increased uh, number of biomarkers within their body from, from effort that's happening. Whether we're talking about lactate threshold or carbon dioxide, there's a number of different ones that kind of correlate with each other, but there's a noted uh, kind of break and then a second break. And then sometimes there's a third break for people, depending on how they, they move and how they, how they do. And so those like ventilatory thresholds, um, that's kind of what we're looking for more so. So typically for VLT, VLT is going to be enough that you're going to be straining some, it's going to be a little bit typically on the high end of that kind of two, two breathing pattern that we talked about before in the tempo section, but it should still be sustainable for long bouts of time for, for, for several minutes beyond minutes, you know, uh, 10 to 15 minutes pretend potentially. And if you do recovery, if you break it up, you should have pretty restricted recovery, like a minute in between of relaxed. If you do that, your heart rate's not going to go low enough and you're still going to have a very nice long aerobic benefit from there. As, as we get up a little bit higher from what I personally have seen, I feel like that critical velocity is more akin, um, uh, more akin to something like a 3K, 5K pace. And then a VVO2 is more like a two mile, 3K pace. And so it's really getting up into some of those faster speeds that you'd only be max attaining for 10, 20 minutes. Uh, and so those workouts, usually that's, that's kind of, what I talked about with the 600, uh, 600 meter repeat workout earlier, where you break it up into these shorter bouts, two to three minutes, and then you allow for a moderate amount of recovery in between in order to get back at it, feeling refreshed, but not a hundred percent. If you go back to a hundred percent, you're kind of losing the benefit. It's getting that a variation in our metabolic system, essentially, you know, training ourselves at those different paces, at those different levels. And like we've been saying this whole time, that variety to it, that variety to our training. So it's not just one pace all the time, but we give ourselves different gears and then we can pull those different gears in different situations and at different moments as well. Yeah. And so like the way I see it personally, why I put this at the end of this mesocycle is I, I imagine the individual who's they're strong, they're in shape. They've always been fit. They're, they're athletic in that sort of way. And now they've gone through something where they have some aerobic base, but they haven't progressed into all these other types of motor control. So when they throw themselves into a high level workout, this VVO2 workout, they're really landing hard. And they're kind of beating themselves up the entire time. And that's where the injury would come from. Because if they say, oh, I can do that workout. And they probably can't. Physically, they're probably strong enough and they, they can get through it. But then if they don't recover enough and they don't take enough time and then they go out and do it again, then you're going to start to have cumulative load problems. You start to have those um, the, the, the dense connective tissue injuries or bone stress fracture type injuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And making yourself used to those different things and, and training those different inputs is so important to, again, make yourself resilient to those types of things and make sure that you're building yourself on all different levels overall. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In terms of 
everything that we've kind of chatted about within this mesocycle between like building that aerobic base and specific race training. Again, how long are we looking for this to take to kind of go through this process? Um, and yeah, how, how long should we expect? Sure. So once again, I see this more as a motor control type of concept that we're looking at, because no matter what your fitness is developing, no matter what you're doing, as long as you're being consistent about it. And so when we look at motor control, neuromuscular development, it's usually on the scale of changes start at three to four weeks. So if we're talking about a short level version of it, it would be four week mesocycle, which I think is pretty reasonable. Most people would be on board with that in terms of training style. Um, but if time is on your side, I think it makes sense to go one more. I think it makes sense to go a full eight, try to get a little bit of that muscular adaptation time, which is usually what it takes and making sure that you had plenty of time to adjust on the neurological side. Mm -hmm. A lot of time with this stuff, we can utilize it again during our race specific training. Like, you know, we're going to do hills in this specific instance. We're going to do our tempo. We're going to do pace specific. All of that we are going to do again in our training because, as you said, we're building ourselves metabolically as well. But keying in on these important differences during this motor control will just help to make us and a better runners all all on its own and to help build that better base to be more um, resistant to potential injuries, potential things down the road and just make us more skilled in terms of running. Yeah. And the way I kind of view it is once again, these are, these are the practices. These are the drills, essentially. Um, a team who only goes out in scrimmages is not going to be that successful. A, a player who only tries to go into games is not necessarily going to be successful. So applying that same philosophy to a running sport an individualized sport by all accounts is still beneficial. It's just most people there's not that instant gratification. You're not getting what you want, right? You're not getting that medal. You're not getting that, uh, that bib to show off as much. Uh, but there's so much merit in doing so. Mm -hmm. I agree. We need to, we need to definitely make this a bigger emphasis for sure, because motor control is such a huge, huge part of it. And we train it just by running, but we can really speed up that process by working on these specific things, whether it is strides or hills or working on that tempo pace, pace specific, whatever it may be, in order to train our bodies to tolerate in that. And when we do that, we're going to become better runners in the process one way or another. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I appreciate it. Um, if you don't mind letting everyone know where they can find you, find your stuff, all that good stuff, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're most active through Instagram and that's at expedition performance, where we uh, look into all different types of sports right now, being that it's winter there's a lot of uh, ski sports and snow sports going on. Uh, but if you want to check out the running specific stuff, that is at EP running. If you have any questions, you can email us at expeditionptp at gmail.com. If you have any general contact or want to know about our coaching services, it is expeditionperformance.com. Awesome. And I will make sure to link all of those in the show notes as well. But um, other than that, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time. <music>